Good morning and welcome to the NextGen Q2 quarterly conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press star two. Thank you. I will now hand the call over to Lee Carrier. You may begin your conference. Thank you and good morning everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Lee Courier, Chief Executive Officer of NextGen Energy. Thank you for joining our second quarter 2023 company update and financial results call. I'll speak for about 10 minutes and then we will move on to the Q&A. Joining me on the call today are Travis McPherson, Chief Commercial Officer, and Benjamin Salter, Vice President of Finance, Acting Chief Financial Officer. Throughout the call, we will be making forward-looking statements, so please visit our website for our full disclaimers on such statements. This summer, we are seeing record temperatures globally. In July, Phoenix recorded 30 consecutive days over 43.3 degrees Celsius. There were forest fires across continents and warmer ocean temperatures. We cannot stay on the same path. Global governments have set goals to reach net zero by 2050, with some ambitiously targeting 2030 for the first milestones. Many countries are acting now to bring more zero emissions nuclear power online. And as the cleanest and most cost-effective form of power generation, nuclear energy is the linchpin to the global energy transition. Nuclear provides reliable, carbon-free, around-the-clock power, and it is a reliable complement to the expansion of renewables like wind and solar as part of a clean energy mix. Currently, there are 436 nuclear reactors worldwide in operation, providing 10% of the world's electrical needs. Last month, we saw the U.S. commission in its first the U.S. commission its first commercial reactor in many years. Off the back of several license extensions issued over the last 12 months, and Japan brought its first nuclear reactor online uh, in nearly a decade. Additionally, the Nuclear Energy Institute is anticipating that 300 SMRs will come online before 2050. And as reported by Trade Tech, these 300 SMRs alone would increase uranium demand by 100 million pounds, which is approximately 50% of current annual demand. We continue to see notable global support for nuclear energy. The Chief Executive at Rolls-Royce recently said Europe will not reach its net zero targets by 2050 unless it embraces nuclear. An American entrepreneur, Sam Altman, stated that nuclear is a way better deal than anything else out there in the provision of clean, reliable energy reinforcing the cost-effectiveness of nuclear and the need for a stable power grid. Additionally, Parnassus Investments, an investment firm known for its strong and focused ESG leadership with rigorous fundamental environmental, social and governance criteria, 
they shifted and approved investments in nuclear. The company believes nuclear energy will be an essential fuel source in the transition to a low-carbon economy. Over the past quarter, we continue to see additional policy momentum that supports a clean energy future with nuclear at the centre. European lawmakers agreed to endorse all nuclear power as a green technology for Europe's industrial revival under the proposed Net Zero Industry Act, granting it access to preferential funding. Despite a decision 40 years ago to phase out nuclear power, Sweden's government recently embraced nuclear energy as an essential way to increase electrical production and provide a stable energy system. Just this week, the government announced its plan to build 10 new conventional reactors. This is in addition to two SMRs previously announced and the commitment to extend the lifetime of existing reactors establishing generous loan guarantees for the additional reactors. The reality is being realised. Renewables, wind and solar alone, cannot support a modern economy and population. This is the reality, and the consequence of that reality is that nuclear is the direction countries are adopting to meet the energy demands. And you are undoubtedly aware of the significant US investments in nuclear energy in the US through the Inflation Reduction Act, bipartisan infrastructure law, and the Chips and Science Act, on top of the Advance Act, focus on boosting the development of nuclear technologies. Adding to this momentum is the growth of the SMR market that I mentioned earlier. Ontario recently announced it was building three SMRs to power the province. The UK is launching an SMR competition to fund projects and France and India are launching a cooperation program around SMRs and advanced modular, modular reactors. The demand for uranium is evident at its current price per pound, which stands just about above $56 US. As the price remained steady in the mid-50s during this traditionally quiet summer period in the Northern Hemisphere, we are seeing increased interest from utilities to enter into off-take contracts. And as we head into the second half of the year, with the WNA in London in early September, where we historically see higher volumes transacted, we are well positioned for a sustainable and promising long-term future for the commodity. Global nuclear capacity is currently 390 gigawatts, with the International Energy Agency estimating it will more than double by 2050. To meet this increase, uranium supply will need to nearly triple because by 2040, it would equate to a 200 million pound deficit and growing. On the supply side, we have not seen the increase needed to meet the rising demand due to mine depletion, rising costs, and geopolitical instability. And while we may be turning a corner in exploration and mining, especially when it comes to the Athabasca Basin, it still won't be enough to meet the rising demand. In addition to NextGen, there are a number of additional mining and exploration companies advancing respective projects targeting to be in production during the next decade. That means action now. A Rook One project will be the cornerstone to closing the gap within four years of permitting approval. 
delivering up to £29 million of uranium annually. With Nextgenbrook One project located in a premier stable democracy of Saskatchewan, Canada, Nextgen is committed to being a partner of choice for fuel buyers and nations actively seeking to mitigate or exclude volatile nations from their supply chains. Group 1, coming online within four years of permit approval, is a critical as it will help accomplish three imperatives. One, provide the world with reliable Western supply, curtailing outside influence on our energy markets. Two, secure the energy transition for nations allied to energy security and targeting net zero. And three, avoid supply chain issues as we're currently seeing in the electrical vehicle market. Business leaders must be able to drive the quarter and have the experience, vision and courage to see the bigger picture. And that big picture is ever expanding. Having a strategy in place that anticipates and mitigates risk for customers, investors, employees and allied nations as well as their citizens is how we approach it at NextGen whilst being highly leveraged to terrific economic outcomes. We recently shared some of this thinking because we fundamentally believe businesses have no reason to wait on policy mandates to do the right thing. Those four commitments, we will only sell to nations who are allied for energy security and targeting net zero. We will maintain a checklist of standards for all partners in the chain of custody of our uranium. We will keep our supply chain and operations onshore in these nations to guarantee the highest levels of security, safety, labour standards and local community partnership. And we will advocate for policies that support sensibly produced uranium to set a new standard for the industry. While these commitments have been embedded in the next-gen strategy from the beginning, our supply chain diversity has become central to the discussion around decarbonisation. We want to bring them forward, and our recent news affirms our approach. The coup in Niger has put the country's uranium exports in serious question. Niger exports 6% or produces 6% of the world's total supply and approximately 20% of the uh, Europe's uh, uh, uranium. Additionally, the East's increasingly complicated geopolitical situation is a major risk for those operating there and for their investors. These events underscore the need to reduce the influence of governments that may, may not share our core values and interests. Conventional approaches to stakeholder engagement and risk management must evolve to meet present-day dynamics. This applies across many industries, and mining is no different. A lot has changed since the 1970s, and we need leaders who can embrace the opportunities those changes create. This is why, after decades in the sector, I founded NextGen in 2011. Uranium is far too essential to our future to rest on industry practices of the past. Customers require suppliers who can meet environmental, social, labour and security standards and act as reliable partners to advance their businesses. 
Communities deserve meaningful partnerships that create sustainable generational impact through positive social, economic and environmental outcomes that extend beyond mind-dependent opportunities. Doing things the next-gen way has led to amazing outcomes and it extends to our relationships with Indigenous communities in Saskatchewan. I am proud to say that during this past quarter, we signed an industry-leading impact benefit agreement with the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan, Northern Region 2 and the Métis Nation, Saskatchewan, covering all phases of the Rook 1 project. The IBA defines the environmental, cultural, economic, employment and other benefits to be provided to the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan NR2 by NextGen in respect to the project and to confirm community consent and support for the project throughout its complete life cycle. This agreement follows the signing of benefit agreements with each of the Clearwater River Dene Nation, the Birch Narrows Dene Nation and the Buffalo River Dene Nation. That's 100% support from all our local Indigenous communities. This is a historical milestone for, the Canadian mining, for a Canadian mining company and a critical step to advancing the Rook One project. We are proud to share that the communities have joined us in advocating for regulatory approvals to realise the opportunity ahead for all of us. NextGen has reached a significant milestone in advancing the regulatory approvals for the 100% owned Rook One project by submitting the final provincial environmental assessment and federal licence application during the quarter. We have also received provincial approval for the commencement of the 2023 Site Infrastructure and Confirmation project, Program at Rook One. This program includes comprehensive field work focused on infrastructure upgrades, which will support the increased activity at site with the freeholds on the critical path. The program is going smoothly and is expected to be executed on time and budget. Before we get into the financial update, I wanted to reflect on summer exploration drill programs on our Rook One property regionally and the SW1 property in the southwest of the Athabasca Basin. Our drilling will continue to test high priority targets on, on both those properties and will provide a further update on this program once it's complete. Total metres to be drilled during 2023 has increased to 22,500 metres. Now, for an overview of our financial position ending on the 30th of June 2023. NextGen had a working capital of 89 million as of June 30, 2023. To the end of the quarter, NextGen has deployed approximately 39.4 million in the successful permitting, exploration and development of the Rook One project. On the financing side, last quarter we shared that we've received strong expressions of interest totaling over 1 billion US in debt. We've recently heard from additional parties also expressing, expressing their interest on that news becoming public. This engagement is a testament to the economic and ESG profile of Rook One and the strong investor support eager to bring the Rook One project online. 
As we look forward to the rest of 2023 and into 2024, we are scheduled to meet critical milestones to advance the Rook 1 project. These include the acceptance and approval of the final Provincial Environmental Assessment, two, the submission and acceptance of the final Federal Environmental Assessment, and three, completion of the final licensing and securing a commission hearing date for the conclusion of the permitting process. While the Rook One site program progresses on time and within budget, I'm proud of the work of the NextGen team. As a leader in the energy transition, we will continue to share our commitments with the world and bring to bear a generational project that will benefit all shareholders and local communities while upholding industry-leading economic, social, labour and environmental standards. Now, let's transition to the Q&A and we encourage questions from all, from all of you. I'll hand it over to the moderator to commence. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. Should you have a question, please press the star followed by the one on your touchdown zone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request. Questions will be taken in the order received. Should you wish to cancel your request, please press the star followed by the two. Your first question is from Andrew Wong from RBC. Please ask your question. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my questions and thanks for the update. Um, I was kind of curious, wanted to ask about your strategy to focus on um, selling to nations who are allied um, for energy security and um, just wondering, like, how, how do you make that distinction? Um, which countries would that include or exclude today? And, um, yeah, just, just want to hear more about that. Thanks. Well, I think that, you know, the recent events that we're seeing uh, around the world in some countries where um, uh, nations that are focused on the sensible provision of power um, to their, their populations is the, the key definition of that. Um, obviously, Canada, US, um, and uh, many countries in uh, Europe fall into uh, that category. Um, you know, when we're talking about such an important global objective, um, it requires leadership. And unfortunately, not all uh, players in, uh, on the planet um, at times behave in the interest of all. So you know, we are very openly uh, stating what our values are and the direction in which we will uh, head. So it's basically open for any country to behave sensibly and act as a, as a good world neighbour. And uh, they will be the countries that uh, we will uh, sell our uh, offtake to. Okay. Um, maybe just switching gears here a little bit. You know, obviously a lot of geopolitical challenges um, in the uranium market. Um, definitely a lot of interest now in nuclear, and we're seeing a renaissance in the nuclear industry. So clearly a need for more uranium, and, and Canada can play a critical role in the connection. Does that help with your approvals process? And is there any update on the timeline for federal permitting? Yeah, I, I think it is actually uh, really just blowing the wind um, uh, stronger into our backs 
we've, we've heard many statements from uh, the Environment Minister Wilkinson and also the, the uh, uh, Christia Friedland regarding the acceleration of um, projects involving clean energy metals and the provision of energy um, in order to um, export to, to uh, those good neighbour countries. Um, and uh, look, we were already very advanced on the, the permitting front. Um, there's no doubt about that, and 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 making significant progress. But yeah, it's always nice to hear from a, a federal and provincial political level uh, the support for your your business initiatives. Saskatchewan uh, earlier in the year launched their critical minerals. Uh, strategy and they uh, used our office in, in Saskatoon to launch that strategy where they openly stated a doubling of uranium production by 2030. Um, uh, yeah, that's our project, Denison's project, uh, no doubt. So, yeah, in incredibly um, positive um, tailwinds um, by both provincial and federal governments in, in Canada and, uh, again, I, I've said it in the past, um, Canada is an outstanding country for the development of um, resources projects, particularly uranium projects, and it's very rigorous, um, and that rigour is in the interest of the long-term success uh, of a project. And as I mentioned, when dealing with such a key component of energy transition and, and sensible energy um, policy is the key ingredient to a higher standard of living for the entire world's population. Um, it rightfully has a very rigorous approach and, and we absolutely um, adopt that and uh, appreciate that. Um, okay, thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from Alex Pierce from BMO. Please ask your question. Morning all. So Lee, you touched on this already. Um, you know, given that uh, additional uncertainty mentioned in, in Niger, um, can you provide a little bit more commentary on how your conversations with utilities have changed in the, the last few months? And, and do you think we're getting closer to the point where utilities you know, may be willing, more willing to sign sort of mutually acceptable contracting terms or, or prepayments, etc., that could help finance the project when the, when the time comes? Yes. Uh, hi, Alex. Yeah, that's, look, I think the the Niger thing has been on the back or in addition to what was already um, occurring. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, we're seeing more RFPs being issued um, uh, in the in the sector, which I think is highlighting that utilities are um, really starting to focus on their supply chains and. And the and actually the materialisation of that sovereign risk that was already around over seventy percent of mine production worldwide has always been there, but now it's materialising in the form of yeah we see the actions of of, of Russia uh, at the moment and now the coup in Niger, and it really is highlighting that that sovereign risk that's always been there. So naturally, uh, a lot of the the Western world and European and Middle Eastern um, and, and Asian countries are, are looking at that supply chain and uh, some, some countries are more vulnerable than others given their past reliance um, on, on some of those sovereign 
locations that are now um, uh, in question. And so I think you will see uh, over time um, uh, a change in the way you know some of the elements around contracting. What utilities want to see though is strong you know, sovereign jurisdiction that's, that's reliable and also strong technical um, delivery and certainty around production volumes. And uh, being in Saskatchewan uh, meets the first box and the second box where everyone's well aware of the, the technical strength of our project with the high levels of certainty around production volumes and, and uh, you know, moving into you know, the latter part of this decade and into the, the following decades, um, uh, you know, our profile certainly meets those two ingredients that utilities are seeking. Great, thanks, Lee. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Your next question is from Winston Miles from 8 Capital. Please ask your question. Hey, Lee, how's it going? Um, just wanted to uh, wish you congrats on, on all the success this year and, and progress uh, at the Rift One project um, so far in 2023. Um, there's been a lot of talk uh, by other companies, especially in the sector, around your, your contracting strategy. Um, you know, I guess my question is, are they accurate with their you know, assertions? You, you could kind of quote unquote dump you know all your production into spot, and then part two of that question would be, you know, how does your contact tracking strategy um, impact the debt process you've, you've undertaken? Thanks a lot. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll answer the first part of that question, Winston, and then hand over to Travis on the, the debt side, uh, who's running that process. Um, look, we're, we've been very, very clear, um, irrespective of how it's, it's been commentated by others, that uh, we are uh, simply taking an approach which reflects the technical and sovereign nature of our our project. And so uh, we are going to, to uh, contract uh, on that basis. And basically what we, we are going to do is really be heavily um, levered to prices at the time of, of delivery. And uh, we, uh, uh, our position is that the uranium price needs to go considerably higher in order to encourage production um, from a number of these uh, development projects um, that are that are nearing permitting approval and even nearing production, such as the Denisons, uh, um, uh, Boss Energies, Paladin are out there as well. And because of the supply gap being so great, we need a diversified uranium supply, mines, uranium supply, particularly in countries that don't exhibit the sovereign risk of, of uh, other uh, countries as we speak that produce you know, a large portion of the world's uranium. So we are purely going to leverage our sovereign aspect and our, and our highly confident technical nature, which provides very high certainty around production volumes. And so we'll be entering most likely into shorter term contracts um, uh, over, over shorter periods um, from that fact, which basically keeps our company exposed to uh, future uranium prices in a sensible manner. We will be contracting um, portions of our, our production, there's no doubt about that, um, but they will be tied to, to um, market prices at the time of delivery. And it's, it's very, very clear. Um, 
uh, I think the contracts are going to be moving um, more weighted to uh, market prices at the time of delivery um, as we move forward. And, uh, you know, we are incredibly levered um, to that uh, development. On the second part... Yeah, yeah. Well, and so on the debt side, I would say the lenders that we're speaking to, and there are more coming to the table, as we mentioned earlier, um, wholeheartedly agree with our strategy, frankly. They see the opportunity um, to maintaining, they know the position of this asset in the uranium market, and taking advantage of uh, production flexibilities is important to optimizing the economic outcomes, which obviously benefits these lenders. So from a debt side, um, one thing we flushed out very early with them is, you know, this isn't a typical mine, uh, whether it's uranium or another commodity. So price hedging um, and a requirement for that is not required. And as Lee points out, it's not required <coughs> for one reason, which is the technical profile of the mine and, and the consequential um, cost profile, um, but also philosophically with respect to this opportunity at hand to to um, flex up and down the mine according to market demand to make sure that the uranium price stays stable and can bring online, uh, you know, more uh, stability in production, particularly in the West. So from a debt side, we will be signing a minor portion of production under volume-based contracts, no missing mechanisms required, meaning full spot exposure at the time of delivery is fully accepted and agreed to by the lenders. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Winston. Thank you. Your next question is from Chris Thompson from P. Financial. Please ask your question. Hi. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, thanks for the intro there, uh, Lee. Uh, good, good discussion, good recap, I guess, on, on what's happening with the uranium market. Wholeheartedly agree. Um, just a couple of quick questions, I hope you don't mind. I uh, just want to unpack some of the details that relate, I guess, to on the permitting side. You know, my understanding is we're waiting for the conclusion of the final, I guess, provincial EIS approval um, uh, permitting uh, sometime this month. Is, is that correct? Yeah, it's, uh, it's imminent. Um, how exactly how far away that is, um, we'll we'll uh, we'll see. And uh, but it's it's fully with the um, uh, environment department of the province of Saskatchewan. This is where we're referring to the provincial environmental approval here. Um, on a daily basis, we have done everything that we are able to do. And so, um, you know, latest feedback is that it, we we can expect it imminently. Um, that will then. Um, commence a 30-day public record uh, period, and then at the conclusion of that, well, the minister, uh, the environment minister, will be in a position um, to uh, to grant approval. Um, you know, we recently, for and mining, uh, with a project in Saskatchewan, received approval within 14 days following the conclusion of that 30-day um, public record period. So, um, Chris, it's imminent. Um, I, I, I can tell you the whole team here at NextGen, there's not a day that, uh, is, you know, on a daily basis, we ensure that we've done everything we, we possibly can. So um, it's imminent. Um, and uh, in parallel to that, you know, we've got the engineering 
proceeding really, really well, and and uh, site construction preparation um, um, uh, being undertaken at site as we speak. Great, thanks, Lee. And then uh, I guess the federal, the federal EIS uh, side of things. Um, when do you anticipate? I mean, I, I'm asking you questions you probably don't know answers to, but I wanted to just provide just a little bit of colour on the sort of lag, I guess, between provincial approval and federal. Yeah, well, look, the, the, Chris, it's a good question because it, it's a, a very detailed and rigorous process. Mm. Um, the provincial one is is incredibly material, and the federal one will always um, uh, come after the, the provincial one. Um, we've ran, you know, the process uh, in tandem, and we've already completed a 120-day public comment period uh, in 2022 on the on the federal uh, basis. We know all the questions that came in. The large majority of those questions were clarifications um, and, and uh, referencing certain paragraphs in in uh, in the EIS, which, as you as you are aware, is a very large document. Yeah. And uh, we've also, uh, at the same time, um, had uh, very like letters of support from each of the uh, four communities in the project area, uh, expressing their um, support for immediate regulatory approval. So, on receiving the provincial environmental assessment, we we already have with the signing of that fourth agreement during the quarter, uh, 100% community support, uh, and that's been expressed both provincially and federally. And so um, I suspect the federal process will will be within a reasonable time frame following uh, the provincial approval. And that's the, the, the indications we've received federally um, right throughout. And uh, I think you'll see you know, things start to accelerate on the federal level once that provincial approval is in place. And but I, I, I want to be clear: once that provincial approval is in place, um, uh, that that federal process is going to be running in parallel to a lot of activity at site. Um, and so um, you know the federal government. And, and CNSC see what's happening and, and uh, see the support from the local communities and um, uh, looking forward to delivering Canada's next uranium mine. Beautiful, And then just finally, just one quick, quick question. And it's something that I guess Travis did allude to a couple of minutes ago, and that is the ability of the operation to flex up, flex down production. Could you maybe expand a little bit on that, and, and how are you going to be communicating that to the market? Obviously, this is not a discussion now, but something that I think the market's going to want to know a little bit more detail on, you know, as you as you start uh, development. Yeah, so, so with the deposit being in such highly confident um, basement rock, we, we can flex production up and flex production down from one quarter to the next. We also have such an incredibly low cost base um, that uh, that all the economics obviously um, play into that 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 flexibility, um, and so we are purely and very simply leveraging the technical nature of the setting in being able to deliver that to the market, um, and so yeah, it 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 is a 
uh, I think, a, a highly advantageous um, element of the Rook One project that is meeting a demand by uh, the utility sector. Um, so it, it, to answer your question, Chris, it is purely around the technical setting and the low economic cost of producing a pound which facilitates that flexibility. Yeah, and to be clear, Chris, to be clear, Chris, we are very confident on what we've outlined in terms of production volumes. Like, we don't see a world where we need less uranium from a mine like Arrow, but this is just to say that we have that optionality to make sure the uranium price stays at a strong, sustainable price for the long term. Mm -hmm. And and the feasibility study based based on thirteen hundred tons a day. Well, yeah, we are also putting in flexibility into that as well um, because we actually are very strong advocates that uh, the world needs more than three arrows uh, online by twenty thirty, and yet they don't exist uh, with respect mm -hmm. to that size and scale. So. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's our position. Beautiful, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Your next question is from Brian MacArthur from Raymond James. Please ask your question. Hi, good morning, and thank you for taking my question. Um, I just want to follow up on the potential debt. Um, obviously, getting a lot more interest than you had a, had a little while ago. Um, do you still think you'll have uh, stuff in place at Q4? Does it make more sense to wait longer, or is it irrelevant because of the way you're going to sign the contract? It's just you're going to get delivered spot in the future, so there's there's no real value in waiting to 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 get a higher price. You're better to just get money in the door up front. Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, with these other parties coming to the table, we're definitely flushing those out and seeing um, their level of interest. And so that may push it back a little bit from Q4 into early in the new year, but generally still tracking well and definitely not on the critical path in terms of a holdup or anything to actually start um, construction activities and shaft thinking. Um, the moment we get that uh, uh, approval to do so. Thank you. And maybe just, Lee, you've talked about four years after permitting. Not to get technical on this, are we talking four years after you received the permits or after CNSD licensing? I mean, obviously, what I'm really trying to get here is when do you think first production is um, potentially at the mine now? Yeah, so it, it basically on the provincial permitting, the feasibility study, if we were to start from scratch, said 42 uh, months. And uh, and so we're, we're going off the, the engineering schedule uh, with respect to that timeline, but it is subject primarily to the provincial um, permitting approval. And in some elements, we've already got a a head start because we've already got an accommodation camp there. We're expanding it. Um, we've already cleared the, uh, the the pads for the sinking of the uh, production shaft and the exhaust shaft, and we're doing the freeze hole preparations as as we speak. So we are already eating into that 42 month uh, timeline from from 
point you know, or time zero. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's those two components which is which is uh, influencing that, and it's and it's subject to the timing of the actual provincial approval as the primary um, gating item. If you if you know if we receive the provincial permit this this um, uh, quarter or next uh, well next quarter uh, in Q4 2023, you can reasonably assume based on all those factors it, it's going to be around four years or within four years following that um, that approval based on the engineering schedule as as uh, currently defined. Great, thank you. And maybe if I ask one other philosophical question, you've talked about, you've got obviously a very unique asset, um, large, good jurisdiction, low cost, um, and, and you're going to be somewhat selective in who you sell to. Do you think that'll allow you to get a premium price from from those customers versus what's historically maybe being been quoted in the market? Will you be able to build in anything for that, do you think? Yeah, Brian, you're exactly right. It is a very unique asset that hasn't been in the market before, and and all we are doing is leveraging it, given its its characteristics, both sovereign-wise and and technically and cost-wise. And I think as you see other dynamics in the market playing out around you know sovereign risk around certain um, uh, uh, sources of production. And technical risk, and and then the advent of highly focused investment funds expecting companies to have elite ESG profiles. You know that environment with a very tightening market with limited supply from good, good, good actors. Um, I think it could eventuate into that um, uh, uh, that situation, and I, I think. All we're, well, I don't think all we are doing is keeping leverage to that outcome, which I think is is paramount and in the interest of um, investors and stakeholders, community, governments, everyone associated with the project. Got to got to also um, take into account that you know the cost of the uranium going into a nuclear um, utility makes up such a small component of the overall cost, so. You know, utilities uh, or, the, or the, the the ability for them to pay substantially higher prices, whilst they don't want to pay an extra dollar than they have to, but you know the market is the market, and and given the low cost that uranium makes up of an overall uh, nuclear utility, terrific scope to to uh, for higher prices going forward. Great. Thanks, me and Travis, for answering my questions. I'll get back in line. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Once again, should you wish to ask a question, please press star 1. Your next question is from Graham Tanaka from Tanaka Capital Management. Please ask your question. Yep. Thank you, Lee and Travis. Uh, I've got a couple questions. One relates to sort of the macro. Uh, you talked about uh, the need for over three arrows to come online by 2030. Uh, what is your best guess as to what the car, the price would have to be, a clearing market price, to incentivize additional mines 
um, to be able to meet that demand? What kind of price level would you need to see in, in U.S. dollars? And, and where would that come from? Are there any prospects that are close? Thanks. Yeah, so you need to look at it, what's the, the reason, I think, regionally, because obviously the Athabasca Basin has significantly higher uh, grades and lower cost profiles than uh, other countries in the U.S., you know, there's, there's projects under development, but lower grade and hence have a, a higher higher um, economic cost. And then in, in Australia as well, um, you've got some smaller projects, ISL, going in, into production, which, which uh, have a, a slightly lower cost base. So um, it, 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 it's, it really depends on the nature of the project that we're talking about. Obviously, the Athabasca Basin projects require a lower U.S. price to get in production. I would say the, the U.S. and Australia need higher prices. Now, in the past, when we saw um, uh, uranium prices go to $140 a pound in the late 2000s, a lot of the U.S. projects, development projects, did not go into production. Um, uh, projects in Namibia uh, as well uh, did not go into production with uranium prices over $100. As you're aware, I'm a formerly a chartered accountant. I'm very cost-driven and data-focused and, and look at cost structures in terms of um, defining our strategy ourselves and, and understanding where, we, where we're placed in it. I think overall, to answer your question simply, uranium prices are going significantly higher. We see you know, production at the moment um, barely breaking even. Um, even at current prices. Um, so I believe the uranium price is going significantly higher and it has to go significantly higher to get additional production on board on a diversified front. It's more than just the Athabasca Basin developers. It's also we need development um, in the US. We need development projects in Australia all coming online um, to meet this very important world goal of sensible uh, energy provision. Okay, so so would you hazard a guess at what kind of clearing price would be needed or a price to be seen back over 100 or 90 or $80 US? What kind of level do you think needs to incentivize additional um, mine uh, uh, additions? Uh, well, it's, to, it's, it's, sure, so in the US, you want to see over $100 a pound to see any material increase in uranium production. And okay. when you consider they produce 50 million pounds, uh, they consume 50 million pounds per annum, yet produce less than one, um, that, that's, that's probably going to be one of the driving um, metrics in this market moving forward. So one, okay. of the, one of the interesting things, Graham, is like it is less of a question about price because even if we had $100 uranium today and had that for the next five years, it's not clear at all where you get to those three arrows. Like, they just, they're not in the pipeline. We went through, you know, post-Fukushima a very long period of time, like over a decade, where there was no investor appetite, no exploration being done anywhere outside of ourselves, Denison, Fission, and a couple others globally. So you need to have elevated prices. What Lee was mentioning in terms of those incentive prices but it's not like you just get those incentive prices and a bunch of production comes online. It's going right. to take a long time to get discoveries made, developed, et cetera. 
Okay, so, so this links up with my next question, which is what is the upside flexibility for NextGen to be able to um, increase its production um, both at the, at the future mill and the mine itself at Arrow? Um, as I believe, if you can confirm, it, it's still open at depth and to two, other, two or three directions. Um, and as well, what can you, what do you need to do from an exploration development point of view to bring on another arrow in one of the other Patterson corridors which you are exploring today? Thank you. Yes, well, we, we currently have a resource base of 350 million pounds. It, it's very, very significant. Um, and so our our, pro, our um, proposed um, mine plan yeah, at 1,300 tonnes a day is very, very small physically, yet will produce around 30 million pounds um, per annum. It's clearly evident that that could be expanded um, in the future. Uh, but um, as we speak, um, we are going in at that 30 million pound um, per annum capability. Um, there's undoubtedly huge exploration upside at uh, Rook 1 alone and we've got two other land packages as well um, that uh, uh, along the boundary of the Athabasca Basin in the prevalent southwestern region. Um, just on the Patterson Corridor alone, like we found Arrow on the very first, or Rook 1, the Arrow deposit on the Rook 1 project on, on the very first drill hole within a four and a half kilometre radius, there's fission seven kilometres along the same corridor with 130 million pounds. Uh, F3 have recently made a discovery uh, up the road adjacent to our S1 uh, project where we're, we're exploring at the moment. Um, yeah, I think you're going to see that area producing uranium for many, many, many decades. Um, and uh, even the Patterson Corridor and the Rukwan Project, we've really only explored probably less than 10% of it as we speak. And we've got another eight corridors in parallel on that project that we need to explore. Um, so, you know, with that, but also having hit ex uh, mineralisation below Arrow, um, I think it's undoubtedly that uh, there's resource expansion, um, very high resource expansion potential uh, as we continue to explore. I just, I just was wondering to what extent if there is, really is a great shortage and the price goes way, say, considerably above 100, um, would, would NextGen be incentivized to crank up production and and also expand the the mill the, the um, um, mill operation and how much would that yeah, cost? Well, that's certainly possible. We haven't done that costing um, yet, but based on what we've already learned about our current proposed mine, I'm I'm absolutely confident it would be both economically and technically um, uh, achievable. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from Andrew Wong from RBC. Please ask your question. Hi. Uh, thanks for the follow-up. Um, I just wanted to ask what kind of construction works and you know, just, just what kind of site works can you get done with a provincial permitting? Um, and also, you know, given that your provincial permitting 
could be imminent, what kind of construction do you plan to have done within the next six to 12 months? Thanks. Yeah, so so we've uh, got a lot of the early stage items um, uh, 100% engineered at the start of the, the construction period. The detailed and final engineering that we're doing is um, uh, focused mainly on the surface infrastructure and, and surrounding the mill. So we're yeah, on receiving permit approval, we can get into it um, uh, immediately. Um, the work will primarily revolve around the shafts to begin with and uh, noting that uh, we are not actually touching any uranium um, during the first three years of construction. So it's all very benign activities and we're currently... Um, detailing those uh, with the province uh, as we speak. Okay, great, thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. There are no further questions at this time. I will now hand a call over back to Jody Carrier. Thank you. Thank you, host. Yes, uh, so thank you for everyone's attention. It's a very exciting time. Uh, for the company, you know, a, a very uh, significant inflection point um, going from, from pre-provincial approval to post-provincial approval um, uh, uh, imminently. Um, the company is ready and uh, the, the team is ready and uh, that with the, the overlying market developments um, both on the demand side uh, and the supply side make an incredibly exciting time for, for all of our shareholders and stakeholders. And um, again, it's, a, it's an absolute privilege to be uh, uh, involved and uh, the commitment of the team is, is, is absolute. So thank you for everyone. Uh, thank you everyone for your attention. If there's any additional questions that you may have, please don't hesitate to, to reach out to Monica, Travis um, or myself. And uh, yeah, we look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the conference has now ended. Thank you all for joining. You may all disconnect.